Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. The United Kingdom is often perceived through its symbols of state, monarchy, ancient institutions and buildings, unchanging firmaments that suggest a union and constitution that has survived unchanged for centuries. However, appearances can be deceptive. The UK in its current form is barely 100 years old, and in the last quarter century has undergone a radical set of changes, including the re-establishment of national parliaments in Wales and Scotland, a reimagined and innovative devolved settlement for Northern Ireland, and a patchwork of regional and urban elected mayoralties in England. But despite, or perhaps because of, attempts at increasingly muscular unionism from successive UK Prime Ministers since 2016, the seams of the union continue to stretch and stress. Over the weekend, thousands gathered in Edinburgh and Cardiff to champion independence for their respective nations, and the UK Labour Party, increasingly looking like a government-in-waiting, is contemplating a platform of radical reforms to the state designed by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown. One of a number of visions for the future of these islands, and perhaps the least well understood, is the so-called confederal model. What does this mean, and how would it improve the way the nations of the UK are governed, and how might it be introduced? To address these questions, we are joined by two advocates for this model. Uh, Glyndwr Kenneth-Jones is a fellow of the Institute of Welsh Affairs with and long-standing advocate for greater cross-party consensus in Wales and for a UK-wide constitutional convention. Hello, Glyndwr. Hello, Richard, and uh, thank you for having me on your podcast this evening. You're most welcome. And Professor Jim Gallagher is an honorary professor at Glasgow University and the University of St Andrews and a former senior civil servant in UK and Scottish governments, including a period in the number 10 policy unit advising on devolution under Prime Minister Gordon Brown, 2007 to 2010. Hello, Jim. Hi there. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you very much for joining us. I should also mention that we have Kerry here joining us on the podcast this evening. Hello, Kerry. Evening, Rich. Evening, Jim. Evening, Glyndor. Gentlemen, I have to start with a bit of a confession that I think confederalism has a truly awful name that most people don't understand. And I think simultaneously is also one of the most difficult models to communicate simply. So if I can abuse my role as a host um, and throw this over to you to answer, what is confederalism and what differentiates it from other forms of constitutional settlement? Devolution. Uh... I suppose, involves a sovereign Westminster, in effect, delegating a measure of sovereign authority to the devolved institutions. A confederal model turns this constitutional approach on its head, if we think conceptually, advocating four sovereign nations of radically different population sizes, delegating some sovereign authority to central bodies in agreed areas of common interest. And it might be helpful to uh, contrast a confederal model at this point with a typical federation, which uh, involves the sharing of sovereignty across two levels of government. In contrast, the confederation is a union of sovereign nations giving the powers to central bodies. In a federation, an individual is a citizen of the central overarching structure and the constituent nation which, within which they reside. In the confederation, the individual is in fact a citizen of their nation state, and through that they relate to the central confederation. If we look, for example, at Article 8.1 of the Confederal Treaty of European Union, it declares that every person holding the nationality of a member state shall be a citizen of the union. So the emphasis very much is uh, the nation states themselves pooling, delegating sovereignty, decision-making to central bodies in specific agreed areas of interest. 
as as simple as I can put it. Yes, I I think that's a very helpful way of starting the conversation. I take a slightly more relaxed view about confederation or federation or devolution, but I've used the word myself quite deliberately for the same reasons Glendur, and that is we've got to move away from the idea of the UK as a unitary state, a centralised state, which graciously hands down power to to the different nations. At the same time, I, I would take a slightly less purist view of confederation and say what we're talking about is getting the right balance, the right sharing of sovereignty between the different entities that form the UK, the different nations uh, and the nation as a whole. It's not merely that there are four nations in the sense of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. In a sense, there are five nations because Britain uh, is, in a sense, a nation too. A nation is simply an imagined political community. But what the confederal world is seeking to do is, as Gwen says, to to turn this on its its head and realise that we are coming together rather than coming apart and that we're building a confederation by sharing powers and getting them exercised at the best level that both express our desires for autonomy in Scotland or Wales uh, or indeed in in parts of England and our desires to share and pool both sovereignty and resources for the common good. I'm slightly addicted to the idea of of trying to make concepts as simple as possible for people to understand and and I'm already kind of starting to uh, feel that I might have bitten off more than I can chew here. Is there are there any examples in the world where we could point to and say that that is a confederal state or that is a confederal union that our listeners could look at and say well oh that's the kind of thing that we're talking about in and that's why you know it may or may not work. Well, I mean, one of the most obvious examples, uh, uh, it, uh, and it's, you know, it's quite current in uh, uh, in many political circles, is the European Union itself. It is you know, the Treaty of European Union is a confederal treaty, but with aspects of federal type control in specific areas. If you look at the currency, the euro, you know, that's almost a federal aspect built into a model of confederalism. And there are, of course, there are some countries that have a loose uh, a confederal partnership with their neighbours and others that have a more closely knit model. But Jim, I think you have some other examples. There are various historical examples uh, which aren't particularly helpful, but that, that Switzerland is a really interesting uh, example. Um, it is, as it were, legally entitled a confederation, but all of what confederation means is coming together to form a federation. So Switzerland is a federation uh, and a confederal UK would be a federation. Uh, The way to think about it, I think, perhaps, uh, to get it to its simplest is this, Richard, that you can think of a distributed state, a state with a a territorial breakdown inside it, as either one which has come together, a confederation, or one which is deliberately separating itself a bit to be more effective and more responsive. The UK is the first kind. It's a state which has come together. It's a union of previously separate entities, Uh, which came together in different ways and at different times. And when we're thinking about how best to run the UK, how best to make the UK work for for all the people that are in it, it's really helpful to us uh, to use the language and ideas that other federal countries uh, have used. And Confederation is one of those. But I don't think we should hang ourselves up uh, on the idea that there's one particular model, one prescription which you can take off the chemist's shelf and give to the country. What you've got to do is figure out what's the best way of allocating 
powers, responsibilities, resources between and among the different parts of the United Kingdom and making it in reality what it's always been, which is a coming together of different nations and territories in the common interest. And the really interesting question in all of this, well, is just exactly what do you do? Who does what and why? What are you seeking to achieve? And that, of course, is exactly what listeners will really be interested in. Who is going to look after my pension? How is the economy going to work? How can we express our um, cultural and uh, social and differences that, in the desire for, that we have for different kinds of social models? And that's what a distributed political system does for you. I th and I think to take on that point, uh, you know, we're in a situation where many now assert a multicultural Scottish, Welsh, English or Northern Irish character before claiming a form of duality, a dual nationality, which also embraces a British personality. Jim was mentioning the five personalities in these aisles. And it is legitimate in that context to reconsider the nature of Westminster's parliamentary sovereignty, such that it more appropriately encompasses authority only over those select key aisle-wide functions, which Jim uh, Jim has, uh, has mentioned. For me, the pressing issue going forward relates to whether sovereignty, for want of a better word, as currently understood, should be shared across these five territorially defined identities, including that of Britain, in a traditional federal arrangement, or instead assigned individually to the four nations, which in turn would delegate or pull parts of their sovereign authority to common central institutions of a fundamentally British character. Establishing such a new framework for these isles with the support of the four parliaments could prove invaluable across the political spectrum, with some finding reassurance in attempting to articulate the more distinctive elements of the UK's practices in a codified constitution or treaty in terms of a confederation, or and with others seeking to cement the sovereignty position of the four nations individually in relation to the common central structure. There are discussions very much uh, around what needs to be allocated to the centre, which parts of defence, which parts of macroeconomic decision-making, currency, the single market, foreign policy. You know, these are the conversations that uh, add substance to the debate. Uh, well, indeed, I spent a lot of time trying to think through what the right allocation of um, powers and responsibilities to the different levels of government uh, might be. I think I take a, a slightly different view from Glenda. If I could arrange that we have all of these conversations and never use the magic word sovereignty, I'd be very much happier. I think the danger of sovereignty, which is a, uh, which is a word which carries so much freight with it, uh, it takes us down the... Um, in my view, undesirable route of Brexit, this obsession with British sovereignty, and it takes us down the route of separatism, uh, creating separate states because states must be sovereign. What we know is that different issues, different matters are better dealt with on larger or smaller or, or more localised or more national, and some at a multinational or plurinational level. So the interesting question then is, Let's not argue about who's sovereign, perhaps. Let's argue about who should do what and why. Take uh, economics, for example, as um, Glendower mentioned. The UK is a, a single domestic market. Uh, it has been for a very long time. And from a Scottish perspective, one of the interesting bits of history here is that the union between Scotland and England was very much driven by a desire on the Scots part to get access to a single English domestic market. 
So an economic union works by and large for everybody. Uh, and we've more or less managed to achieve an economic union in the UK. One of the challenges we're facing very much today uh, is how you manage that uh, in Northern Ireland, given the uh, the need for Northern Ireland, and I absolutely agree with this need, uh, to remain in the European single market as well. So economic union matters in terms of trade, in terms of the movement of goods, in terms of uh, the movement of capital, and in terms of the movement of people, so that folk can move from one part of the country to the other. So you don't want, in my view, to allocate power in such a way as to get in the way of that, because it doesn't produce the right welfare. And similarly, I think all of us would agree, so I hope all of us would agree, uh, that across a territory like the UK, you do also want some sharing of resources so that the poorer parts of the country don't have poorer public services, simply because there isn't much tax revenue in one place or another. So a degree of sharing of public resources matters. As it happens, there's a big degree of sharing uh, inside the UK, partly because we're so economically unequal, but partly because also historically that's been one of the characteristic measures of the UK welfare state. You get the same old age pension in um, London as Lanethley. So uh, I think that matters quite a lot as well. But subject to that, and to perhaps to the management of foreign affairs, defence and so on, seems to me that the general principle is that most things should default to the level uh, of Cardiff or Edinburgh or Belfast, or for that matter, Manchester or Liverpool or Newcastle. In my book of the League Union of the Isles, it essentially, it essentially proposes a confederation of England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland with aspects of federal type control built into key policy areas. Uh, in the model, a council of the Isles acts with mechanisms in place to address the different population sizes of the nations, specifically through the composition of seats. So the members of the council would be typically elected for a four-year period, convening annually for a fixed time, 90 days, unless urgent business is demanded. It assumes its own standing orders, presiding officer, an executive who prime minister and ministers enact powers on matters involving defence, foreign policy, internal trade, currency and macroeconomic considerations. You know, the, main, you know, the main areas of concern uh, 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 that we've touched on. Each bill, as an example, could be considered by the, count, by the council. It's circulated to the four national parliaments in advance of reading, with nations empowered to make objections or suggest amendments before voting. This provides a useful counterweight to any aspirations of the centre to act unilaterally on issues such as defence and foreign affairs, which are concerns for some, and on passing the head of the Confederation would confirm the bill as an act of the Council of the Isles. Of course, national parliaments would act as the sovereign legislative bodies of the nations and comprise the First Minister and their ministerial positions as required to see their offices and would be able to subdivide their lands according to their own acts of national parliament, defining the composition and responsibilities of local or regional authorities. And alongside the Council of the Isles would be a committee of member nations comprising the Prime Minister of the Confederation and the First Minister of each member nation, which discuss other matters requiring cross-border considerations such as postal, telephonic and internet communications, airports, port and traffic controls, coast guard, a whole host of other areas. Um, but there is a way of modelling a structure uh, for collaborating across sovereign nation states, sorry Jim for using the word sovereign, uh, in a way that allows uh, comfort uh, to those 
of a more uh, nationalistic persuasion uh, in government and those who have a strong sense of the need to build a future based on core relationships across the aisles. And those are the two areas that uh, we need to think when we are discussing the constitutional question. There's the strategic compromise, which we need to find so we don't find our island relationships fracturing. Yeah, it's very interesting to hear you talk like that, Glyndor, because the way you talk about it is that governments collaborating very much like the European Union model. I think that's, I mean, that is so far away from what we have currently that it is quite a, it is quite a leap to get there. And I think, I think one of the questions that I would like to ask, but I think Jim particularly might be the person to answer this one, is you know, particularly given his role in governments at the time that devolution was relatively new, is that when devolution was brought in, particularly to Wales and Scotland in uh, 97, after uh, referendums, I think a lot of people thought that a lot of the questions that we were, were talking about potentially answered by some form of evolved federal confederal development later on in the future were going to be solved by devolution. So why why is it that devolution hasn't delivered on that? Was it ever possible that devolution in the form envisaged in 97 could deliver on that? Or are these developments that we're talking about actually part of that long process that Ron Davis talked about devolution being all those years ago? Yeah, I think um, the last point is probably the important one. The devolution settlements of uh, the late 90s, particularly the Scottish one, uh, were actually quite remarkable uh, in their own way. And, and we rather take for granted that that uh, happened and happened smoothly. An extraordinary thing about devolution is how well it worked rather than how it didn't work. It worked in all sorts of ways uh, that it might not have done. So I don't, I don't think we should take that for granted and simply shrug at it. Uh, what it didn't necessarily do was uh, get the bundle of powers and responsibilities right. That was particularly true in Wales, which has been a, an evolving situation uh, and has evolved now to be more or less the same as Scotland, leaving aside the, uh, the issue of um, uh, a legal system. Have these issues, uh, have these changes addressed the question? Well, I suspect rather more than, than, than we think, but they've got, they've got further evolution to do. When I would regard Lindour's, as it were, ideal, typical model of turning the, the UK into the EU as a skeleton uh, rather than a day-to-day -day proposition. I think we will evolve uh, in those kinds of directions. The really important thing, however, is what Lindour was saying about understanding that in designing these kinds of uh, uh, constitutional arrangements, we are trying to balance both some real issues, uh, some questions of what works better at the, the, the UK level, what works better at the, at the Welsh level, and some aspirational issues. What do people feel? And we're trying to say to people uh, that uh, it is possible, in a sense, to have your cake and eat it, to be both very profoundly Welsh and nevertheless uh, part of, of, of a wider union, just as it was possible, in my view, for people in Britain to be both British and members of the EU. Uh, and maybe we haven't, I don't think we've quite got the balance right yet, but I do think uh, that, that, we, that, that we can uh, and that we should. I think the one interesting question which we haven't touched on that you mentioned at the beginning, Richard, uh, was, of course, decentralisation in England. And what's fascinating is if you ask people uh, all across Britain, if you ask them in Wales and you ask them in Scotland, you ask them in 
uh, uh, in the different regions of England, is how deeply unhappy and distrustful they are of a London government. Uh, and that is partly immediately political. You know, there's stuff going on in London I'm not really happy about. But it's also structural. And the UK is an unusually centralised state, and that centralisation particularly applies in England. Uh, and one of the problems of the devolution settlement that we have today is that what we see is a UK government trying to be two things at once. It's trying, and not doing, trying very well, not trying very hard, to be like a federal government in its relations to Cardiff and Edinburgh. And it's trying to be like a unitary government in relation to its uh, uh, relations with the northeast of England, with Manchester, with Birmingham, and so on. And funnily enough, you can't manage both, both at the same time. You contradict yourself all the time. And we ask people in England, uh, uh, and I've done quite a lot of work on this, on public opinion in England, and basically what they want uh, from governance, how, the, how their country is structured, is very much like what people in Cardiff and people in Edinburgh want. And they want as much power and influence locally as they can have, still with the, as it were, the envelope or the safety net, or whatever phrase you want to use, uh, of a wider UK or English economy, uh, social welfare provision, uh, and external relations for the most part. So I think uh, what's fascinating about this potentially is that this idea of distributed power in a set of people who've come together is as relevant to folk in Manchester as it is to folk in Cardiff. I think that's quite right. Look, the economic and demographic disparity across the UK is widening, and it's one of the reasons my support for increased autonomy across the nations is coalescing to ensure that they are empowered to address the unique circumstances each face going forwards. In 1999, as Jim has highlighted, England was omitted from the devolution reforms. It was not allocated a parliament of its own in common with Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And it now comprises 56 million people, over 56 million people, more than five times the total number living in the other UK nations combined. And England's continued unity is not without question, as it contains significant regional variations in terms of wealth, status, power and population. It is heavily orientated towards the South, producing almost 22% of the UK's total output. London acts as a strong centripetal force undermining the position of Northern England more broadly. It could be said that England suffers from an absence of a discrete parliament through which its internal inequities may be addressed. The need for some form of formal written framework, I think, becomes increasingly apparent when we reflect on events in Westminster in recent months. That's that's really brought it, uh, the discussion to where I'm I'm quite interested in, gents. Uh, It's where England kind of fits into everything you know does the existence of a national uh polity in england by many in westminster exist and uh, if it does how can that be governed and is there is there a road that will take us towards kind of england coming down this confederal route i think glendor you were just talking then about uh, a written framework but also the inequalities in england do you, do you think we'll see a desire in England to, to develop a confederal approach, Jim? I think what we will see uh, in England, I think what we do see in England, is a desire for much more decentralisation inside England. England's the most centralised country in Europe on almost any measure, uh, on, in terms of power, in terms of uh, lawmaking, uh, and also, as Glyndor said, in terms of its economy. 
it's also the most geographically, economically unequal country. And it's not, it's not a coincidence uh, that economic inequality and centralized power go together. So I myself don't see uh, the answer uh, particularly as an English parliament, because that would be another level of centralized power. I would like to see much more decentralized power in England. Uh, Labour started on this uh, in 2001, but uh, it came to a grinding halt after the referendum in the Northeast. But what's interesting to watch is the extent to which the mayoral model in the larger cities of England has to a degree caught the public imagination. So I think we may well see, uh, we will see, I'm sure, in fact, a much greater English decentralization, probably based on mayors and conurbations to start with. But in the end, I think it will, it will have to uh, color, cover the whole country. And in time, uh, more of this, uh, more of these sets of governance uh, will be written down in a formal way. I sympathize with Glendower's aspiration for a codified constitution. I don't think in the short run we're going to see that. We're not going to be able to write it all down, but I think we will find that we can write more of it down. And in particular, I hope we will find ways to write more down about the establishment and permanence and powers of the devolved administrations and parliaments uh, in uh, Cardiff and Edinburgh and Belfast, but also in time, more ways of crystallizing and stabilizing and making permanent the decentralization of power within England. So I foresee uh, a much more decentralized UK in 20 years' time. Can I just hop in there? I know you've got a follow up, Kerry. I just want to ask a quick question about that. The, the question of regionalization of England, or, you know, th there are some people who are dead set against it because they see it as a sort of diminution of, of England and English nationhood. But there seems to be one kind of question that comes back about that. When you when you think about lawmaking, in your vision of, of decentralised Englishness, would that include multiple legislatures for England in each of these regions, or would they be a single legislature for England because um, I think that's one of the that's one of the yeah. quandaries. If you you know, England could easily become a federal state of its own. You know, it's big enough, and it has distribution. You know, it has roughly compartmentalized. I can never remember. Is it twelve regions of England that are all relatively similar in in size? But the idea of each of those regions then be, being its own legislature and having its own primary legislation is quite far is is a step further again away from where we are now given you know I, you know we're still fighting in in many regards here in wales to have our parliament have its own jurisdiction for legislating within um and that's uh, that's a 25 year old battle that's still still ongoing how do you resolve that jim what's what's the i don't myself see uh, the idea of um, separate as it were, primary legislatures in the different parts of England as, as realistic. And the reason I don't see it as realistic because is if you ask the people of England, they don't want that. They understand uh, their, and you know, one, just as one has to respond to the people of Scotland or Wales, one has to respond to the people of England. What they want uh, is executive power nearer to them. They, want, they seem to want mayors. When they've got mayors, they like them. And that's an executive rather than a legislative model. My own view on that is that, that we might find that that evolves over time, not into separate legislatures, but more flexibility in different laws in different parts of England, probably homologated by Westminster. Uh, and I hope 
shortly to publish some ideas for, for doing that. Uh, and there are certainly there are potentially ways of doing it. Let me give you an historical example, uh, which people tend to forget about. And that is in the 19th century, much of the social change in Britain, and particularly in England, but also in Scotland, was promoted not by Westminster legislation, but by local legislation in Glasgow and Birmingham and Manchester. I think of Chamberlain's Birmingham, huge reforming institution, workshop of the world, economic revolution, but at the same time, social revolution. These are the people who brought in uh, municipal lighting, municipal sewers, municipal transport, slum clearance, systematic planning, all done uh, without the interference of central government, but backed up by legislation promoted by Birmingham in London. So there are lots of imaginative ways in which one might do this. So England will change. And as England changes, uh, and this is, goes back to the important point that Glenda raised, there has to be some way, a stable way, in which people in Scotland and Wales can feel comfortable inside the UK. And that means change inside the UK. And change inside the UK will primarily be driven by change in England. Look, all unitary states, such as the UK, face ongoing challenges in acknowledging the partial autonomy and diversity of their constituent nations and regions within, and especially sustaining a sense of belonging to the larger political body. And it's by having the conversations and by acknowledging the challenges, uh, we, we can start the conversations which will hopefully lead us to a space where people feel comfortable in understanding uh, the areas that we uh, can successfully and usefully share, and also where decisions need to be made more closely uh, to those, those matters direct them affect them directly some form of union, Britain, some sort of league of the British Isles in some form, some form of federation is paramount to our future. You know, we can't have a situation where there are four separate nations uh, uh, operating across these isles without some form of single market, some form of understanding of macroeconomics, shared defence. It's, it's something which clearly needs to be uh, uh, seen as part of a, uh, of a larger uh, structure of relationships. And if we look at, you know, to take it back to something Jim said earlier, Britishness, you know, the concept of Britishness is much older than the UK. You know, British ideals va and values are partly forged by geographic, historic and cultural influences and usefully bridge the demands of world interdependence and the desire for increased autonomy, whether in England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. The challenge is to capture these principles in a new framework which strengthens arrangement for self-government or decision-making nearer to those who are affected by the uh, uh, by policy, but whilst working within a structure which is typified by pluralism, tolerance and justice, equality and solidarity. But if you go back to your question, Richard, uh, devolution, increased devolution within England itself, if there was an English parliament, would not, you know, the issue of a separate legal structure then for each region would not be uh, an issue. What, what's going to be the driver? What, what political forces are going to be taking us down this route. You've got Clyde Camry championing confederalism based on the Benelux kind of model. Uh, the SNP are going down the independent route. There's radical federalism from Labour, Lib Dems. Jim, do you think any of these political parties are going to take us in that direction of a confederal UK? I think it will be, it will be interesting to see... Um, what we have seen in the last few years from the recent UK governments has been 
first of all, an attempt at so-called muscular unionism, which hasn't worked. And even actually, uh, the Conservative Party now has realised that muscular unionism doesn't work. Uh, it simply plays uh, to one set of people uh, in a country uh, and not to the other. But similarly, uh, to be blunt about this, muscular nationalism doesn't work either, right? Because it too only plays uh, to, to one part of the country. Now, um, I don't know the Welsh public opinion and Welsh demographics as well as I know the Scottish one. <coughs> so let me just look at it from that perspective, the Scottish perspective. If you look at people in Scotland, Roughly speaking, one third of them are really keen on independence. They think that's the matter that determines everything. Roughly speaking, another third are equally, equally opposed to it. And the rest are in the middle somewhere. And funnily enough, they split roughly down the middle if you force them to ask the force them by asking the question. Actually, they don't want to have to answer that question. Uh, they'd like to be able to get on with their lives and not be constantly put up against the wall and asked whether it's yes or no. Uh, and I think. We shall see, but uh, I don't think the SNP are yet ready uh, to look beyond the question of a referendum. I don't know enough about how Plaid are uh, placed on this, but I suspect that they are still quite at the hard end of the market. The Conservatives will change. The real opportunity, of course, lies with the Labour Party, and the Liberal Democrats will, I think, uh, be supportive. And we'll see uh, what uh, Labour produced in, in this area. But my reasonable assumption is that they are going to move towards a situation in which the UK gradually reforms itself uh, and becomes more comfortable uh, for both the Scots and the Welsh and responds to those demands in England that I was talking about earlier. Of course, many a slip twixt cup and lip, and there isn't a general election for a bit. Uh, but as of today, that looks like uh, a likely outcome. Uh, well, look, with, with Nicola Sturgeon, you know, having addressed the Scottish Parliament in the summer about a plan for a second independence referendum, and in Wales we have the Commission on the Constitutional Future of Wales established by the Welsh Government, considering options for fundamental reform of the constitutional structures of the UK, we are approaching a crossroads of sorts, and we certainly are approaching an opportunity where uh, we can uh, 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 approach things with fresher thinking. You know, the political realities across these aisles, you know, if we think of an SNP government in Scotland, a Welsh Labour government in Wales, a Conservative government presently in Westminster, and a Sinn Féin's May election victory in Northern Ireland, we should acknowledge these differences. You know, the trend for divergence in policy stances across the four parliaments has compounded ongoing disagreements centred on constitutional change, with different parties holding powers in each of those institutions for over 10 years. You know, if we do set our minds back to 2014, and I know Jim was closely involved in this, in the tacit acceptance of Scottish independence as a legitimate option, further to the 2014 referendum, for example, suggests that, to use the word, sovereignty is ultimately determined by the populations of the nation separately and not by the people of the UK collectively. So the possible challenge I mean, to both Conservative and Labour parties is to become more formally representative of the nations within their organisational structures. The makeup of the Liberal Democrats is already federalised and the strength of the various nationalist movements is at a level uncommonly seen in other multinational states globally. However, Britishness as a concept is much older than the UK and it's unrealistic to argue that, say, the Scottish people 
in a notional independent territory, would start considering the English as fellow Europeans instead of fellow British. So there is a strategic need for us to explore some form of broad constitutional compromise, which embraces the concerns of both unionists and nationalists and moves away from a winner-takes-all answer to the challenges ahead. You know, if we look at federalism, to protect the UK's unity post-Brexit, the Welsh government has suggested federalism as a way forward, mirroring unionist views in Scotland. However, federalism, whilst admittedly delivering more powers to Wales, offers restricted opportunities for expanding Scottish autonomy beyond the status quo. And there's little to tackle the UK's future relationship with the EU in a way that is satisfactory to the Scottish government. It would likely deliver a form of the Barnet formula, as desired by the Welsh government, but would impact negatively on the Scottish block rent, strengthening the attraction, dare I say, of a second independence referendum. And further, a top-down model of representation remains within a traditional federal framework. And this is especially true in party political terms. So I feel the debate has moved on substantively in recent years, particularly in a context where the four nations took different tacks in many ways during the COVID pandemic. I know views in Wales about the nature of Cardiff's interaction with Westminster have changed a good deal. And the mood in Scotland, as we have seen, is now moving towards a second referendum. But I would hasten to add at this point, I feel that the SNP's stance of uh, advocating uh, uh, separatism uh, rather than talking about relationships with partners across some form of confederal Britain problematic, as it would restrict the nation's ability to facilitate a single market with its largest trading partner, England. You know, we've seen the situation with, with Northern Ireland and uh, the implications of, uh, of the European single market. So given that the traditional model of the federal UK is currently, in my view, politi- a politically difficult proposal, and that secessionist tendencies are increasingly prevalent, there is a need for some fresh constitutional thinking. And if we were offered a hypothetical opportunity to constitute Britain from scratch, and yes, of course, rarely one is given that that luxury, could we not recognise the sovereignty of the home nations in a confederal arrangement and seek to work within a robust social, economic and security partnership, but directed by a limited mature political legislature? And that's a question, not a statement. <laughs> well, let, let me let me have give you my answer answerish to that question, uh, and it is yes, of course. Ultimately, uh, and this was recognised explicitly for Scotland in 2014, and has long been recognised uh, in respect of Northern Ireland, and is implicit, I think, in respect of Wales. Uh, if they really, really wanted to. Uh, the people of the home nations, to use that phrase, uh, could choose to leave the United Kingdom. I very much hope that they won't. Uh, and I, the reason I very much hope that is very similar to Glendora's reason, that there's so many benefits that can be got by working together with your neighbours uh, that you would be foolish to throw them away. And not merely for instrumental reasons, but for moral reasons. I think it is right to share with your neighbours. It's right to work with them. It's right to resear, to share uh, resources and to pool risks. It's morally right. What will happen is that the arrangements that we've currently got will evolve further. They will evolve further, first of all, uh, in recognition of the underlying reality, which doesn't, I think, mean uh, that there will be uh, another successful independence referendum in Scotland. I don't think 
the referendum is going to happen. And if it did, I very much doubt that it would be for independence. And I can imagine no worse outcome for a new nation than to start out on the vote of 51% uh, for separation. And that's just, just a crazy idea. And interestingly, there are voices in the SNP uh, recognising that. Whether uh, what we've got will, will evolve into quite what Glendur is, uh, is sketching out, I'm not so sure, but well, let's see. Evolution can produce all sorts of unusual and strange beasts in time. The important thing is that we allow it uh, uh, to begin. You both mentioned Ireland in your most recent answers. I, I just wonder, I think, you know, Northern Ireland often gets overlooked in some of these discussions, but uh, do you see any kind of future where a confederal island develops to, to ease that process of a merger of the North and Republic of Ireland? Well, let me start on Ireland. Um, I, I'm, there's a problem and an issue in which I've been interested uh, for many years and very concerned for obvious reasons. And the situation has, of course, been destabilised by Brexit in ways which are, frankly, unhelpful to everyone. The key thing uh, is that we must always recognise on Ireland the principle of consent. And that is ultimately the people in Northern Ireland are the ones who need to decide and have the authority to decide their relationship with the rest of the island of Ireland, but also with the island of Britain. And what we've been working at since the Good Friday Agreement is a very careful balance, which, which realises uh, that there are two traditions, each of whom look in opposite directions, and we have to keep both of them on side and inside at the political system, which we're struggling to do at the moment because of the Brexit impasse. Northern Ireland differs uh, from Scotland, at least, uh, in that the question then is not should Northern Ireland be independent? And there's no serious uh, proposition of an, of an independent Northern Ireland state being a, a member of the United Nations. Uh, the question is to which union would the six counties of Northern Ireland belong and on what terms? Uh, and at the moment, we're gradually working away in which we have strong north-south institutions, strong east-west institutions, and a governance framework based on consent. The challenge today is to get that working again. Uh, it's complex. Uh, I think the inevitability of a border pole and Irish unity at some point in the future is probably progressively recognised. Uh, I mean, if we look at history, you know, the failure to adapt and deliver Irish home rule in the period before the First World War resulted in an upsurge of more radical voices and the eventual departure of the greater part of Ireland from the Union. So it was an unnecessary breakdown in British statecraft, in my view, and a mistake from which the politicians in power today should, should learn. I would say any state, I mean, if we look at... Uh, these isles broadly, any state where a significant proportion of its territory votes in large numbers of parties that wish to secede from its governments must reflect and find ways of alleviating the issues apparent. And it is imper imperative that it's an informed debate of what kind of future will get the greatest possible support and traction across all elements of Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish, English and British society is now progressed. Constitutional reform is unfinished business in the UK. I think that's now widely recognised and will remain so until we uh, face the challenges directly and, uh, and work to a, uh, a, a model-based more on consensus. 
Well, gentlemen, I mean, apart from the fact that I, I love there's a there's a lovely bit of Welsh Scottish synchronising that we do when somebody says Barnet formula, the Scots tend to smile and the Welsh tend to put their head in their hands. And that <laughs> happened in, in real time on the podcast here, um, which was absolutely great. Um, I'm very grateful for your time. We just have one one more question to wrap up. And um, I'm conscious of your time and very grateful for it. It seems to me that uh, confederalism is a sort of sensible compromise and it reflects that kind of both that desire for autonomy and desire to pull risk and rewards within a sort of family of, of wider nations. Uh, sensible compromises um, are not, alas, the kind of thing that motivates people to campaign. I'm yet to hear people out on the streets saying, what do we want confederalism and when do we want it now? Um, so what, in your view, do you think is needed to kind of move this kind of conversation to the point at which something starts to happen in reality? Is this a political process? Should we be looking to the Gordon Brown review, as you mentioned, Jim, for the Labour Party, which does look increasingly like the next UK government? Is the Lord Salisbury-led Active Union Bill project, which is sort of is moving in fits and starts, the kind of intellectual, is that providing the kind of intellectual basis for a lot of these discussions? Or is there some kind of other, um, you know, popular force that we should be looking to to kind of motivate these discussions and sort of spread the ideas? Do you have any ideas uh, as a sort of close? Ho hopefully they'll be optimistic ones, but they don't have to be. Okay, three ideas from me. Uh, first, uh, we do have to do more of the kind of thinking uh, that some of this conversation uh, has exposed. Uh, Glendur and I don't wholly agree on the mechanisms and the structures and so on, but we are in the same broad general place that if we're to have a stable uh, society, uh, our constitutional arrangements need to evolve. So um, there's nothing wrong with a few eggheads uh, thinking about this, whether that's um, uh, in Robert Salisbury's group or, or inside the Labour Party. I think that's highly desirable. Uh, second, uh, we need an opportunity at the moment uh, we are rather locked into a binary uh, knocking back and forth between people who want separation and people who deeply oppose it. Uh, we need an opportunity to move beyond that. And then the third thing, and this is the thing that really matters, uh, we need political leadership that says to people, there is a better alternative. There is a choice that isn't just uh, disagreement, that isn't just division and split, but there's a choice which gives most people most of what they want, and we can make our way gradually and carefully and successfully towards that. So I look forward to that bit. Fantastic. Thanks, Jim. Over to you, Glyndur. Yeah, today, you know, we are confronted you know, by significant constitutional challenges and tests, you know, as this conversation attests to, which require exploration of fresh solutions and governance models for the future. Different political parties have held power in each of the four parliaments now for over 10 years, with Scotland moving towards second independence referendum, possibly in October 2023, and the Commission on the Constitutional Future of Wales actively considering options for fundamental changes, reform to the UK. But as the world now knows to its cost, climate change, pandemics, conflict, and their economic repercussions respect no national boundaries. So we should therefore approach our deliberations in the spirit of consensus building and cooperation. And this is why we need uh, a uh, UK-wide convention of some description where the various uh, parts of British society, Scottish, Welsh, Northern Irish and England, come together and uh, share their aspirations and uh, 
and, and, and common interests. We'd assume that we would want a common currency, bank and market. To sustain our social union, we have to guarantee individuals' rights of movement, residence and employment across the nations. And to uphold our joint security, the forces of defence and organisation of foreign policy should be held to a degree centrally. If we agree on some basic core values, then we are in the space of what form of decision-making would we want to fit around those functions? So there will be different views around the decision-making processes, uh, but we're not going to get there uh, uh, unless we come together and we have the conversation as four nations collectively. If we keep on having these conversations separately, individually, as nations, then the whole framing of the challenges as how do we best relate or in terms of relationships will not happen. So I would strongly advocate that we move towards a UK-wide constitutional convention. Thank you very much for uh, landing that landing that call for a constitutional convention, Glyndwr. And thank you both very much for your time. I thank understand you. that you are both Twitterers. So um, if people have enjoyed listening to you this evening and um, would like to hear more uh, of what you have uh, to say, um, I wonder, Jim, if I can start with you, what's your Twitter handle? I am at Prof Jim G. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Jim. And uh, Glyndwr? At Glyndwr CJ. Well, fantastic. Thanks both to Glyndur Kenneth-Jones and Professor Jim Gallagher. And if you've enjoyed this episode of Hiraith, you can follow us on all the socials at Hiraith Pod. Uh, you can uh, contact us via www.walespolitics.com. And if you're able to spare a few pounds, you're very, very welcome to become a patron at patreon.com slash Hiraith Pod. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Hiraith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.